Hello, and welcome to Biofilm Podcast. This is a show where I interview biomedical and life science professionals and ask them about their career, opinions about current events or thought-provoking topics, and their taste in movies or TV. They aren't really irrelevant branches of science. They're just science branches which not yet have had their prime. Hello, and welcome to Biofilm Podcast, a show that brings you to the forefront of biomedical research, biotech, pharma, and healthcare fields, and a professional behind it. I'm your host, Pavel Rzhov. My guest today is Dr. Peter Tirit, a research assistant professor at SBP Medical Discovery Institute and a chief scientific officer at San Diego startup Tumorgen MDX. Peter has had a fascinating journey bringing him from Germany the United Kingdom and then to the United States. Coincidentally, my professional journey took me to similar destinations, and that's why it was a pleasure to get introduced to him a few years ago. Today, we will find out more about his continued fascination with biophysics, his entrepreneurial endeavors, and find out what kind of German wine he likes best. Welcome to the podcast, Peter. Well, thank you, Pavel. I really appreciate the invitation, and as you rightfully pointed out, our paths have crossed a few years back, and it's been a pleasure working alongside as a colleague. I had an honor to get asked one of the first questions in, in the presentation that I delivered in my first year of PhD studies by you. I didn't know you at the time, and your, question, well, your NMR-related question just took me a little bit aback, but this was, uh, I guess, what set me up to be more prepared to answer these questions going forward, so I really appreciate that. <laughs> I, I suppose. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd like to ask my guests uh, a movie-related question in the beginning of the podcast. So I'm a huge Quentin Tarantino fan, and one of my favorite movies of his is Inglourious Bassets, which coincidentally takes place in a number of places that we both used to live in. I wonder, uh, do you like that movie? And if not, what kind of movie or TV show brings you back to the different places that you used to live? So I do like uh, Quentin Tarantino and his movies. I do like his his take on, on taking maybe some historical facts and just running crazy with it. Uh, so I thought Inglourious Bastards was just, just a fun romp. Mm -hmm. and, um, and he's been pretty good in getting fantastic actors uh, and often finding actors who suddenly give amazing performances in his movies. So, so no, I definitely enjoy that. Uh, other mo movies that take me to places, there are a few and and... I've been very fortunate in my early life that, that I traveled a lot from young age. My parents loved traveling. Uh, I think age of three, uh, I probably crisscrossed Europe more than, than, than many you know, people have in their lifetime and lived uh, obviously abroad in the UK and the US, but my parents lived abroad in India, in Taiwan, uh, across oh, wow. aspects of the world. Through them, I, I got to travel Australia, Africa, and many many other locations so i often find that some movies take me to a very specific place somewhere in this journey so i i i sometimes see uh, a movie which maybe features around about like jaipur in, in in india and then suddenly uh, it throws me back taking the pink city express from new delhi down to, to jaipur when i was 14 years old mm -hmm. and stuff like this so i i love movies and i love catching a scene of something i'm i'm familiar with yeah i do you recall what movie we actually have had the chance to see together was that some kind of superhero movie that was the one of the recent avengers one i believe right yeah uh, it, it might have been may have been the infinity wars or Endgame. i can't remember uh probably, which one. probably infinity war so but on the subject of like say marvel movies i i remember watching the first avengers here in the san diego when i was back in college and then seeing maybe the next Avengers, gosh, I think it might have been in Germany, and then seeing like a Captain America in, Amer in the UK, and then coming back here and seeing all the rest of them. So I definitely have like, kind of similar to you, uh, th these experiences of going to see movies in different countries right. under different circumstances. So that's why I could definitely relate to what you're saying, like being able to experience this and kind of go back to it in your memory. And this is fantastic. So this actually per leads me perfectly to the question that I had where was this, um, as you say, you traveled a lot. Was the path that ultimately took you to the United States something that was predetermined to you from an early age or you actually wanted to maybe stay in one place when you were growing up and actually get your education like in Germany, for example? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, my, my path to the US is, is 
Well, in hindsight, you look at things and sometimes it's like, oh yeah, it's a fairly linear track, but the reality is, of course, I never planned it that way. I, I was, uh, I started my undergrad at the University of Aachen in, in Germany in straight up chemistry. But I've always had a, a much bigger fascination with the uh, life science aspect of, of science, the biochemistry and, and biophysics. So after the first semester, within the first semester, I, I kind of reoriented myself and decided to leave Aachen and actually go back to my hometown in Krefeld and join the technical university there with a specialty in biochemical engineering. Because I thought it would be a good opportunity for me to, to get um, a much stronger biochemistry background and, uh, and, and then potentially build up on that. I did this for a few years and, and it was great, it went well. But I, I always realized that, of course, modern science is, is an English speaking you know, English is the, the language of modern science. It used to be German <laughs> many, yeah, many years yeah, back. Yeah. But but for sure it is uh and particularly life science, it's 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 English. So I decided to take an internship at the University of Leeds in ninety-five. I had an opportunity uh, at a lab uh, of Andreas Holzenburg, a fantastic electron microscopy scientist. And he took me on without really knowing me it was almost a cold call i made out to him and gave me the opportunity to join his lab for a year mm -hmm. and my ambition there was basically uh, go to the uk uh, really firm up my my, my english uh, and of course get some amazing science experience and and have some fun along the way too <laughs> yeah so I, I i packed my mom's car with a assortment of things and and, and drove out there and I certainly remember somewhere on the journey thinking, oh my God, what am I doing? You know. <laughs> so can you actually take me back to that just a little bit more? Did you, like, how did you actually go about finding the, that professor over, over at Leeds? Was there like email communication? Well, e email existed already, but it was def definitely more facts and, 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 and actually letters, written letters. So mm -hmm. my, during my undergrad, during the, in, um, biochemical engineering degree, I had to do various internships in Germany. Mm -hmm. and, and one of them was in a textile research institute. Mm -hmm. uh, my hometown is famous or, or has a long history in textile. And, and the, uh, one of the German textile research institutes is, is based there and it's physically right next to, to the university. And so I, I ended up doing an internship there and continued as like a student assistant in the lab uh, for a few years and, and, and ended up having my own little projects and, and uh, having a lot of fun. But one of the uh, PIs there had a, a connection to, to the University of Leeds uh, and Leeds, again, a strong textile industry. And the university has a, uh, the, the textile department is one of the oldest and longest standing in, in the UK. So, so they gave me a connection there and I, I, I crafted uh, a letter of introduction. I crafted, so to speak, uh, uh, an application uh, mm -hmm. for an internship. Uh, I got help from my old English teacher uh, oh, from, wow. my, from my high school. I approached him and, and he helped me with that. And uh, it was sent out and the people in the textile department just looked at it and it's like, I, uh, we have no idea what to do with this. And <laughs> They ended up in, in the pub one evening talking to some colleagues in the biochemistry department and they were saying, oh, we got this crazy German who wants to come for work for free for a year. And we, we don't really know why, because he wants to do biochemistry. And, and then I ended up in the hands of Andreas Holzenburg, who, who somehow took pity on me, I suppose, and <laughs> took me in. Or, or had a providence of saying, okay, this might be a great scientist going forward. Ah, uh, maybe. <laughs> so where did the fascination for science specifically come from? I, mean, I assume maybe if you had this opportunity to travel to so many different places, you had, I guess, inherently had some kind of fascination with maybe nature and how people live. But what about the life sciences that attracted you the most? So life science, and this is the funny thing that you look back, you sometimes see that string and, and, and you just didn't realize it along the way that it's there. The science always came fairly easy to me. So in high school, I was a middle of the road student. I, I had subject matters I, I was great at. I had subject matters I, I kind of really struggled. 
I, I, I was not an A student, I was not a C student, it was just like middle of the road. Uh, but science, chemistry, physics, biology always came really easy to me. The teacher introduced a new concept and I was just like, yeah, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. And it just, you know, and, and other subject matters, not, not, not the same. So I always felt my affinity was very strong there. And then life science, I, to the day, I, I would love to find it again. There was a documentary I watched on, on, on German television. Mm-hmm. And it was about X-ray crystallography. And it showed researchers at the University of Berkeley mm-hmm. uh, looking at a 3D projection of a protein. In those days, it was uh, obviously a wire model, very, very mm-hmm. simple, back from the 70s or 80s. And I-, I was absolutely hooked. I thought this is the most amazing thing. These guys look actually at a protein, at the structure, obviously a model of it, but you know, on an atomic resolution. And, and, and that really fascinated me. Mm-hmm. It was a very, very strong impact. And I didn't really, I wasn't sitting there at that moment. It's like, oh, this is what I have to do. But I, I realized it was an image or it was a scene that, that, that really sort of like focused my, my, my direction. Yeah, I, I, could, I could relate to that in the sense, I remember a lecture on protein structures back in high school where I was like, this is so fascinating, this tertiary structure. And even though I didn't stud, start to study protein structure specifically, structural biology until later on, and I actually, I never had a class on that, but I remember when I was in Germany, I happened to stumble upon a protein folding handbook in the library. And I started reading that, like denaturation curves and things like that. I was like, oh my gosh, this is so right. exciting. And right. I, I could relate to this, you know, being fascinated with, with proteins. But I, I always had this sort of uh, um, conundrum. I thought like proteins are super fascinating. And DNA in my mind is less so. Do you feel that that way? Maybe like DNA or nucleic acids in general are less fascinating? I, I, to me, they are. And, and, and this is not by any means uh, detracting from amazing work people do on DNA. And of course, we learn more and more about the complexity, how, how, how this actually uh, you know, functions and, and, and RNA gets involved in so many levels. So, so no, I do not uh, detract from that. But but personally, I, I, I can relate to, to, to your thought there. It is, for me, it's amino acids, proteins, the, the core machinery structure of, of life, uh, I always feel is so strongly associated to proteins in my life. Yeah. So in, the, in your research in Oxford, like how did that start for you from transitioning from Leeds into the PhD, did you already like commit yourself at that point to to doing just science and really following this maybe true academic tra- uh, track, if you will? Yeah, the science. I would say that that was uh, for sure when I was uh, in my final year at Leeds and finishing off. And uh, what what actually happened just to finish that part that 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 arc off after my internship, I actually decided to stay in the UK and I transferred and finished my undergrad at the University of Leeds. The uh, department there was uh, phenomenal in accepting me and, and, and giving me some credit for my previous work. So, so, so that's how I ended up in, in Leeds for basically three years. And then towards the end, when I uh, was looking for my next step, and, and I was pretty set on pursuing a PhD. And I was fortunate, the uh, UK system, if you finish your undergrad, uh, at least it used to be in those days, if you finish your undergrad uh, with a certain grade or above, you can actually move straight into a PhD program. You don't have to go through a master first. Mm-hmm. And I was fortunate that I scraped into, <laughs> into, into those areas. And uh, I found myself looking for opportunities. And uh, because of my internship, I was still very fascinated uh, with electron microscopy and uh, applied uh, for a PhD position uh, with Marin van Heel, uh, van Heel in, in, at Imperial College in London, uh, Helen Seibel at Birkbeck, uh, John Finlay uh, in Leeds, and, and I, I had about four or five offers provided to me, and people were saying like, hey, we would like you to join our lab. And then I came to Oxford for a long weekend to see a friend, and. Uh, Ended up chatting to 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 Tony Day, uh, who was looking for a PhD student, and we were chatting for about ten minutes, and he offered me a position <laughs> in his That's lab. So, so amazing! Wow. So it was um, 
uh, I would say the, the, the takeaway for me was always, you never know what opportunities arise. Just be ready to maybe grasp or take one, you know, if, if, if it comes along. Yeah, I would say that this kind of story, I guess, reminds me or just has a notion of like science in this almost like romantic and poetic way. Like, especially UK, I guess, has a, you know, storied history of, you know, these grandiose discoveries or conversations right. in a pub where people come up with these fascinating ideas to try and test them. This sounds like one of those stories where people just, you know, happenstance, bump into each other and just decide to set on this, you know, adventure, basically. It's definitely a reason what attracted me to stay in the UK. Germany, as, as you are aware, has a still very strong hierarchical uh, setup in science. And growing up in that system, I, I didn't know better. It was fine. But then coming to the UK, I was uh, really smitten by, by how accessible everybody was in the department. I mean, the highest ranking professor, Nobel laureates who came for special lectures, which just happily buy your pint in the pub afterwards yeah. i mean not it was normal yeah and, and and as a as a measly undergrad i was just like oh my god this is amazing <laughs> so do you think that um do you think america can learn a thing or two from that i mean we could say that america is very open country and very welcoming peer you know has a peer system but i feel to some degree maybe uk has a maybe I don't know, something to it, like that kind of interaction that is maybe due to its longer history of doing science. Like, do you think there is a d difference between the two countries in that regard? I think there is, and, and I have thought about this. I thought about what are, what are the differences. Um, the US has a fantastic uh, history of science as well, of course, uh, particularly over the last 100 years, so to speak. And But aspects of the mixing of a social level uh, I feel never quite, or maybe they had it in the US and it got lost. The the four o'clock tea hour in in the UK is I missed it. <laughs> right, it's just like you know, at, at a certain time, everybody just stops pretty much what they're doing, plants there, and you go and have a cup of tea and 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 a digestive. And it's an opportunity to give your brain a break, but it's an opportunity to maybe just run a thought past a colleague from a different lab, different discipline. And and people were always very happy to talk about uh, your 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 research and their research. So mm -hmm. so the exchange on a personal level, I thought, was always very positive. And yeah. and I, I do miss those aspects. And yeah, you know, sometimes you went for a pint after work as well. And again, the the social aspect. Uh, this was really an extension of a work environment, just in mm -hmm. a more relaxed setting i completely understand this like having had a chance of just even being in uk for three and a half months like just being submerged in that uh, atmosphere in university of cambridge just gave me that taste of like i wish my science and experience was always like that where you have these social environments uh, that you know you go for right. a pint you go for a cup of tea like this is such a staples of doing research that i had at the time i was like okay i have to have this going forward granted maybe i didn't have that in america as much but but at least i had a chance to experience that a little bit yeah i think it shows itself as well how uh, a phd program is executed in in the uk a phd student largely is on their own feet i mean they they, they got to pick a project uh they often have a mentorship from the pi or uh, a senior uh, maybe a senior phd student maybe a postdoc it's set up for about a three, three and a half year turnover, which means you don't necessarily have a long-standing number of, of, of PhD students in a lab. It's, it's usually a smaller number and it's more staff scientists and postdoc, but you are thrown at the deep end much faster and you know, you got to take charge of your project much faster. And that means though, you can often decide the, some directionality of your project more and, and the interaction with your colleagues becomes more relevant. You not just only have a, a mentor who gives you advice, but you very actively have to seek out help and advice from, from colleagues. So this, again, UK sounds like a perfect environment for doing research. So what changed? Like, what did, why did you want to, to leave such a perfect place? <laughs> so as, as with everything, I mean, uh, I, I, I loved staying and, and being in, 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 in the UK. I ended up 
staying in Oxford for seven years, I, I did my PhD and I did a postdoc uh, with Jim McDonald in, in NMR, structural biochemistry. And then I thought, okay, I, I want to enter my next phase. I, I want to, to get a postdoc in another lab with, a, with an advancement, not just like a continuation of what I know already. And uh, I, I found out that Francesca Morassi was looking for a postdoc in in La Jolla, California. And Francesca was well known for her work on uh, protein uh, membrane embedded and uh, protein NMR solution state and solid state. Uh, and I thought that would be a great opportunity to actually learn something new. And my PhD work was on the extracellular domain, but was on uh, a membrane associated membrane embedded protein already. So I, uh, in my cryo-EM work, uh, I did membrane embedded protein. So I always felt uh, the membrane is, is, is the place to be. So, and it's a pretty important part in biology anyway. Uh, I applied, I, I called Francesca. I called her on the phone. I talked to her. I sent her my CV. We exchanged and she gave me the opportunity to come to San Diego. And so in 2005, I packed the bag and came over. How difficult that move must have been. Again, like I, I just sort of keep thinking that UK has, I guess, a number of places to keep learning and keep growing. I mean, was that just something that was a hard call to make or is this just came naturally to you? No, it was a hard call to make. Uh, and I did not anticipate to, to then be in the US for 15 years, to be honest. So I, uh, I expected, you know, I'm going to go to California. I'm going to do my postdoc two, three years and you know just focus on it and and my uh, expectation was i'm going to go back to the uk mm-hmm. uh, i you know for 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 my next steps afterwards and well it took me a couple of years uh, i i loved being in francesca's lab uh, we we did some good science we published great papers so so i'm very very happy about this but in 2007 i met my now wife so <laughs> as so often uh, there are sometimes external factors uh, that keep you longer in a place. Yeah. Okay. That's that explains it then. The America swayed you with the with its beauty. <laughs> Absolutely. And and I really, I mean, uh, that was certainly not the only reason I stayed. I mean, I I uh, love living in San Diego. I I really enjoy being at uh, the Burnham Institute or Sanford Burnham Medical uh, Sanford Burnham Prebis Medical Discovery Institute. Uh, I think it has been a great environment for me to grow scientifically and certainly to to grow as well as a as a mentor uh, and and um, as a growing scientist uh, in other capacities than just on the science. So as a, let's maybe stick with just science for a little bit longer. So as a biophysicist, obviously you have fascination with protein structures and since you had so many years of experience, you know, doing experiments yourself, maybe helping others do them. Like what are the, I guess, um, what are your thoughts about the type of work that you do? Like how does that evolve over time for you and maybe your relationship with science? Do you feel ownership of uh, your projects now more? And what kind of questions or challenges you sort of are facing today then? And how does that compare to where you started? This is a good question because uh, it's it's a little bit bivalent. I mean, you have um, at some point in a career, of course, you you sometimes move away from from being the front of the bench scientist, and and I was always fine with that because you know you you have grad students, you have postdocs, you have other people you work with who might be the one executing an experiment and. But the problem, of course, is that the advancement for junior scientists has become very, very difficult. The, the number of, of uh, academic positions, the, the type of positions are really competitive. And I sometimes feel if you don't bring your three nature papers and your two R1s in your bag, it's like almost impossible to really get the faculty position. Uh, on the other hand, of course, uh, I, I achieved a certain comfort level at the Institute and worked with fantastic people after Francesca uh, as well. Uh, I, I left Francesca's lab in 2010, I believe, and started working with Jan, uh, Nick Cosford, 
and uh, shifted more into the chemical biology side where I did a lot more project management, um, grant writing, project conception, and structural biophysical support uh, in the small molecule drug discovery space. So my role shifted a little bit from a pursuit of a hardcore academic career to, you know, let's look, how can we really put a team effort um, into to finding therapeutic solutions or therapeutic angles for all mm -hmm. the proteins I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. So do you feel like uh, an academic career, purely academic career, is something that you're maybe not uh, thinking about going down, you know, down the line five, ten years from now? You don't want to be a professor? Uh, I do want to be a professor, but I, I'm trying to be realistic as well that the path uh, is not going to be uh, the, as linear as, as, as people say, postdoc, uh, assistant professor, and so forth. So I, uh, we'll see. I mean, uh, I, I continue to, to, to engage. I continue to um, try to find the opportunities that give me that next step on the other side. I don't want to be just tied to this one desire, this one goal, because I realize there are many aspects, many aspects of science, but many aspects, of course, uh, that, that that make me very happy. Mm -hmm. uh, it, yeah, I, I was I was just going to to ask. So, it, do you feel some kind of frustration when it comes to this nonlinear progression of, to get to the tenure? Like how? As a person who actually, I think, really wants to make a difference in that type of role, like, do you feel like you experience these roadblocks and you have experienced them for all this time? Um, a little bit, yeah. Uh, and, and of course, I always have to go back and ask, you know, how much of that is my own decision or my own actions and, and how much are external circumstances. I feel a lot of the academic system right now is geared towards people who show uh, an ultimate focus on this one thing. And, and with that, they, they established their scientific career. And then after maybe five to 10 years, when they became associate or full professor, that's when they're allowed to, to branch out and become actually sort of like diversify themselves again. Mm -hmm. and, and I always had a strong interest in diversifying myself early. I mean, I, 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 I really enjoyed uh, the bench work. I enjoyed the biophysical work, but I actually liked grant writing. I like researching new concepts i do love to to talk to people outside of my domain to maybe really see how we can solve a problem which is um just novel right almost irrespective of the disease irrespective of methodology so i get sidetracked by by problems and and i guess i i i'm lacking the this killer focus this killer instinct to just sort of like hammer through on this one level I could definitely relate to being a little bit uh, disorganized in the sense of you're so curious about being science, about being scientist, about answering these different types of questions and problems. And I feel like that's where maybe being a scientist, classically trained scientist and going into tenure, this is where maybe the fault lies of not necessarily supporting breadth of interests and sort of diversification of ideas like is that kind of how you feel yeah a little bit i think that that that's yeah it is the um i i i there seems to be a prevalence of people who take on a project of their mentor's lab and then basically build their own career on this and I, I never felt that this would be uh, the path i go i mean i, I always feel i am very attracted by big picture questions big picture answers and this is part of the reasons why i i ended up in the more entrepreneurial space as well because i feel that that the area where i try to make a difference it's it's a big problem it's a big question and and incremental advancements don't do justice i think it just needs some really big push and sometimes you gotta you know go for it yeah. So on the entrepreneurial side, what is the thing that attracts you the most about branching out into this kind of very different space from science? Like what's the, what was the push that told you or like the, the spark that said, okay, I have to do this now. It's probably learning about um, the specific core 
biological events. So, so you, you're a little bit familiar with this. We, my co-founder, Jeff Allen and, and myself, we kind of uh, started looking at the circulating cancer cell clusters as, as a, a strong primary driver of metastatic events. And, and the underlying issues uh, you have, I mean, metastasis in cancer, of course, is a huge, huge issue. And these circulating clusters are really uh, primarily connected to some of the worst outcomes and worst prognosis patients can have. So we decided, what can we do? And, and, and we realized that there is not a lot known about them. It's difficult to capture them. So, so in a roundabout where suddenly I find myself in an engineering approach, uh, trying to capture these cells uh, in a microfluidic fashion, but it harks back as so often to your own work. I mean, I, I looked at the properties there, some of the characterization people were able to perform on them, and we found certain commonalities, which directly linked back to my PhD work. And hmm. based on this, I was able to, to design and come up uh, with a biomimetic approach to, to capture these clusters. So it, it was a core problem. I mean, and this is now connected to so many other things. We started doing uh, basic efficacy testing of cancer clusters in an in vitro setting, because we want to find out, could we, if we capture clusters, can we actually uh, not just analyze them, but can we actually use them for uh, a direct therapeutic testing and all this? So now could I have done, or could this be done in an academic setting? Of course. I was just about to ask that. Yeah. No, absolutely. You, you, of course. But the problem is, of, I, I don't have the established expertise for that. So when I write grants on this subject matter, people will say like, well, he's not a cancer biologist. He's not a cell biologist. Yeah. Right. Uh, the question is not, can he do it? Or is there, you know, is the rationale good or are, are the approaches described reasonable and achievable? It was yeah. just like, oh, this person is not uh, who should do this work. Yeah. So, so I was perpetually running against this and in the entrepreneurial space, that really falls away yeah people just like if you can convince somebody your idea is good and that you can exercise this execute it then your chances are that you can get some funding and you can actually advance with that i think this is where academic research maybe maybe failed to capture on your potential and i think not just yours but i think that's a good example of where academics is sort of a little bit maybe it's one-sided and one-minded when it comes to really taking people's ideas and just sort of really boxing them into their own expertise and not allowing them to really pursue things outside of what their right. expertise is. Right. I think that is, is, is a, it's a common problem and, yeah. and particular for younger scientists uh, who are expected to, to just have their heads down and focus and get their, you know, 10 first author papers or whatever. <laughs> Do you feel like this is a problem um, of science in general, or is it like a, loca a location dependent? Like in America, this situation is better or worse than in UK or Germany. What do you think is the um, to that? Well, my scientific career really only took off in the UK and the US. So I can actually talk more about the UK and the US than I can do necessarily about Germany. I believe the UK is more friendly towards people working at the edges or slightly outside of their core expertise, as long as the rationale makes sense. Germany, I feel would be less friendly towards that, but I, I, I can't actually, funny enough, I can't actually comment on that specifically. And in the US, there's a strong, people are put in boxes in this country uh, uh, in, a, in a way which is not always apparent. Hmm. So, so, so what do you mean by that exactly? So in science and life science specifically, uh, I think you are, people ask like, I, what are you? Biophysicist, cell biologist, uh, structural biologist, uh, yeah, virologist, a label. immunologist, there's a label, exactly. And we all know, of course, um, that science does span across many of these subject matters. I mean, yeah, it's just intrinsically. I don't even feel how how, how I could I, I could uh, argue differently. So, why shouldn't I be a biophysicist uh, who has a strong interest in cancer biology and and cell biology and 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 admit that I would not be the best person to 
perform every cell-based experiment, but but certainly have learned that uh, with with a talented postdoc, with a phenomenal grad student, this can be achieved. And more importantly, collaborations. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, you, I, you, it's a team effort. Science should be a team effort. We should really uh, advance together. I think we we're not really in the area anymore where era where where we have this one person coming up with this phenomenal uh, hypothesis and and proves it right uh, yeah it's it's increasingly hard to keep all the information in one brain i mean there is right. you have to rely on other people and i think in the industry or like what we conventionally call industries like biopharmaceutical industry you have the bigger effort to really diversify the people that you work with and just sort of right. distribute this information and distribute the load that you sort of pursue. So it only makes sense that you would try and go into the entrepreneurial side of things. Do you feel being in San Diego helped you to jumpstart that idea than as compared Probably. to maybe other places in, in America? Uh, well, I mean, you know, uh, San Francisco, Boston, uh, these would be the primary other areas uh, that come to mind. I mean, there's some other great growing biotech areas. Texas has some, really strong biotech growing and uh, obviously uh, uh, the research triangle uh, in South Carolina uh, is, is um, uh, a very strong area too. So it's not exclusive, but San Diego does have a couple of strong advantages. In a fairly close area, we have three or four world-class institutes and universities with strong existing collaborative interactions. Surrounded by uh, many small startup companies, pharma companies, biotech companies, and of course, the presence of some of the major pharma players. Mm -hmm. So I feel we have a really good uh, and diverse scientific ecosystem available to us. And people have, quite a few people move across this ecosystem from, from big pharma, maybe to a smaller startup sometimes even into industry, uh, sorry, into, into academic research, like Nick Cosford, who came out of uh, Sibia Merck industry into an academic position, nonprofit, but academic-like position at, at, at SBP. Mm -hmm. So I think that's quite unique to San Diego. Do you feel you have an ability to now leverage your scientific background and actually keep learning all the business aspects that are related to the success of your this, of this new venture in San Diego specifically. Do you take advantage of maybe some of the mentors in the area, like venture capitalists or oh, people like uh, that? Yeah, one hundred percent. So, so in part of the entrepreneurial, as part of the startup uh, adventure I'm on, we joined the San Diego Angel Conference, and that was the the podcast uh, Chris Conn and I talked about a couple of months ago. So, it was uh, partially uh, our journey within that. This is an amazing angel uh, investment-based uh, meeting of, of uh, companies, startup companies across the board, not just life science, all, all sorts of technologies and ideas. But we received some amazing uh, mentoring and tutoring within this program. And it's, it's, it's largely free of cost. I mean, it's, 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 it is pretty phenomenal what uh, University of San Diego puts up there and, and provides to, to the community here. But then so many amazing individuals I, I talk to and, and who, who offer time, help, advice, and their contacts uh, to us. Uh, I was able to establish a fantastic collaborative relationship to, to Professor Cassini at uh, San Diego State University and uh, to other people at UCSD in the bioengineering department. I mean, all this was only possible because we are so physically close. Mm -hmm. And I'm a big believer in if you start a collaboration, you have to have some personal rapport with people. You, mm -hmm. you know, you, I, I love to talk to people in person and, and understand them better and give them a chance to understand me better. Yeah, I think this is maybe comes from your experience in, in UK, right? Where you have these uh, close personal interactions with right. people on the scientific level over a pint of beer. And I would, I would be remiss not to mention, obviously, the crisis that we all face. Like, how did that... Uh, lack of personal interaction affect maybe your uh, entrepreneurial venture at that stage? Like, do you feel like you may be losing on some of that important networking? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, uh, the COVID-19 crisis, the lockdown, uh, pretty much put a complete hold on, on the entrepreneurial activities. Uh, we, 
we had discussions going on with various companies uh, where we in a very we are in a very um, in a phase where we are very actively looking for partner and investment, and it it just came to a screeching halt. Mm -hmm. People, uh, unless you have that existing relationship, uh, are reluctant to 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 learn about new things. And uh, funny enough, I believe their risk awareness becomes sort of like more sensitized. Maybe mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're becoming less likely to take a risk. Maybe because yeah. people are just generally uh, less likely to take a risk for for obvious reasons. Yeah. So. Maybe uh, taking a, this, a look at the COVID-19 implications for science in general, and it's a bit of a loaded question, but what do you feel is the most important uh, thing that will come out from this crisis when it comes to how it will impact science, scientific community, scientific research, like the way we do science? Like, what do you feel as a researcher right now? What do you think will change as a result of this in your workflow, in your approach to do science? What will change? I don't know. My crystal ball is broken. So, uh, <laughs> well, I, I can't say for sure what will change. Uh, I. What I do you hope to change? <laughs> what I hope for change is is, I hope the awareness how important basic science is becomes really strong again. I mean, we can't just keep cr taking the cream of some research, you know, just like and, and, and monetizing it through a biotech or bi big pharma company without investing into our basic research. Mm -hmm. If we don't have people, uh, I'm thinking sometimes 20 years ago, if I would have done my PhD in, in the life cycle of algae, people would have said, you're crazy. And then 10 years ago, if I had a PhD in the life cycle of algae, I could command, you know, uh, a very sizable salary in, in a lot of the uh, biofuel startup companies around. Mm -hmm. So that for me was always a science. Like they aren't really irrelevant branches of science. They're just science branches which not yet have had their prime. Mm -hmm. And and I think basic research does more than just uh, fuel maybe uh industry but basic research as well fuels people's fascination with nature and i think basic research helps as well to to maintain a healthy respect for our environment that is so so deep i know it might sound like a cliche but i really believe this is true like this is something i completely understand what, what you mean it has to fuel this imagination and fascination with uh, you know what's what's outside you right. know, of, our, of ourselves and within ourselves too that's why we do. That's why we do right. science. Because and outside, just yeah, outside. I mean, of course, we all want to make some money in our lives, and I, certainly not a, a luddite that I say. You know, you can never have a, a profit in, in in what you do. But on the other side, not everything should be exclusively based on that. Yeah. So, and and there must there there have to be mechanisms that people who work really hard. And let's be honest. You look at an academic environment. You look at a non-profit. People work crazy hours often, spend many years uh, training in a very specific and very difficult skill set mm -hmm. and, and have often not the ability to actually live uh, an average life in, in a fairly expensive place like San Diego. So yeah. it, it makes it difficult. And I think it, it sends a bit of a wrong message to, um, to the next generations. Yeah, I, I could relate to that because obviously a lot of my peers sort of in my generation of scientists, if you will, are asking the question, which is, you know, it's a, 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 of academia versus industry. But I think now that we had this discussion, I feel like maybe it's not the, about that question really which, that we should be asking. It's like, why is our academic science does not allow us to pursue the questions that we want to pursue ultimately, because I imagine a lot of the people that, that I know that are PhDs have a, still a fascination with science and with, you know, understanding of how we work, but maybe academic type of science does not necessarily allow us to have that quality of life that we really maybe want to have. And actually that's why we seek our opportunities to pursue and ask these questions right. elsewhere. And I'm not even, you know, quality of life. I'm not talking about, you know, wanting to, to, to own four houses and, and drive five cars. I, I mean, we're just like, we're talking pretty basic levels here. So. Yeah. So, uh, so do you feel like, um, 
so I would say this without necessarily really pointing fingers, but what's, who is at fault more here? Are there scientists who maybe fail to communicate why our science is important? Is it legislature? Is it maybe some, something else? What do you think? Um, scientists are not necessarily the best always to advocate for their own case. Uh, I mean, there are, as with every other profession, you have a diversity of personalities, but traditionally scientists can become are not necessarily the best public communicators. Let's, let's be honest here. Uh, so, so can they become better? And yes, but I think there are some fantastic efforts. I mean, uh, the Institute, uh, with their communications office. I mean, people really do go ahead and people like you, right. Who, who take to podcasts, who, who have the ability to maybe, uh, bring a scientific subject matter to a broader audience, I think are, are part of the solution for this one. I, not so much looking at who's to blame. I'm always more looking. It's like, how can we actually advance this? How can we actually solve the problem? Not so much. Sometimes it is important to look at uh, the causes, of course, but, mm -hmm. but not so much the causes, not so much at the culprit. Yeah, I was, I was actually planning on making a video and I, I made a video. I just didn't publish it yet about uh, the perception of public when it comes to this crisis that we're dealing with, right. which is to say, okay, industry, like pharmaceuticals industry is at the forefront of the news headlines in terms of development of vaccines and treatments and so on and so forth. And it may create a sort of wrong perception in the public because the academic research now is taking more of a long-term approach of solving mm -hmm. further pandemics questions right. and really going, uh, right. thinking five, 10 years into the future. And I think this is a good opportunity for basic scientists to step in and say, what we're doing now is going to help you prevent this from happening in the future and not just sort of just looking from the sidelines at all the amazing stuff that all the pharmaceutical companies are doing. So. Yeah, I, I think I, I agree with that. So, so I think it is, uh, it, it is important and, and academics do think ahead. I mean, there are uh, uh, grants out there where people really is like, how can we look for a broader solution to this instead of just uh, um, chasing the, you know, chasing once it's the fire started, but, uh, you know, having more preemptive tools in our arsenal and, and I'm very fortunate to be part of some of these efforts at the Institute uh, with Sumichanda, for instance, and his lab, uh, where we, uh, where he just received a very sizable DOD grant specifically looking for broadband uh, antivirals. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that work is there and happening. Can this be supported by legislation? Of course, right? I mean, more funny put in, uh, more fund, uh, funds put into to research are, are, are necessary. I mean, you cannot expect with uh, uh, effectively reduct, uh, reducing the, the budget of the NIH to solve major future health crises. Yeah. Uh, do you find yourself uh, having more time now as a result of this crisis to you know, spend time with the family or friends or otherwise? Well, friends, not so much. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, we... <laughs> yeah, 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 sure. <laughs> um, I do spend more time with the family to some extent, but I've been actually personally very, very busy over the last two and a half months. I was in the lab pretty much every day oh, wow. and uh, supporting the work in the Chanda lab and uh, helping out with some of the other essential uh, tasks that need to be performed uh, to, 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 so we can go back and continue our research. I am very fortunate that the uh, uh, very good-looking American, as you said earlier, uh, who, who helps, holds me in this country, <laughs> is uh, also an amazing mother. And, and she is, is the one who is taking the burden and the brunt of our homeschooling requirements. Mm -hmm. With a six and eight-year-old, it's often quite interesting. Two boys are, are a handful. Yeah. So we spend more time together, for sure. Uh, uh, but I, I don't necessarily have more time. I, I try to balance some things. We do certainly, um, get our physical exercise in. I go running or cycling with the boys early in the morning. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, on the weekends, if I have some time, I try to do some woodwork actually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> to, oh, wow. That's nice. <laughs> to, do you, do you, do you, uh, make them speak German with you by any chance? Yes. They're both bilingual. They actually attend, um, the German Pacific school, San Diego, which is fantastic. 
language school, uh, yeah, not which you're your president, which of which in addition I'm 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 acting or I'm I'm the currently the president of the board. Uh -huh. So this is a really fantastic second, uh, supplementary education program uh, for, for bilingual uh, German speakers I, or even people with a strong interest in German. Are you uh, obviously, I, I'm assuming you do like online classes now? Nowadays? Yes, uh, the, the, the school has moved to a full online system already back in March. Mm -hmm. uh, I was very impressed. The principal, Christine Johnson, I mean, she and the teachers were amazing. I mean, there are, of course, as always, the people who do all the work. You know, the board is there, we supervise, we help and we support, but, but the core work is all done by the teachers and the principal. And within, I think, a few days, they were able to set up online classes and switch over. I mean, I my wow. hat off. Yeah, I, yeah. I, now, now that I hope to uh, have maybe a little bit more time on my hands, maybe I will take you up on that offer that we discussed uh, uh, a while back during the fundraiser, talking, <laughs> yeah. talking about supporting, of actually maybe learning a bit more German. Well, <laughs> So as we, as we wrap up our, our discussion, like I guess one last question I have sure. to you and maybe to our audience. So why should Americans switch from drinking Coors Light or Bud Light to uh, drinking German Riesling? That is a fantastic question. I love it because um, I've always been a red wine person more. But uh, a very good friend of mine uh, and her, well, actually two friends, uh, uh, a pair, part, couple, uh, who, who own a German import wine store here, uh, were so gracious to host a wine tasting event uh, in support of the uh, German school and yeah. uh, where you were so kind to come and support the efforts. Yeah. And, he she's german and and he's american so a very similar situation to me and my wife and uh he introduced me reintroduced me to some amazing german riesling and when i was 16 17 years old living in germany already legal to drink riesling for me was just like a sweet juicy not very pleasant uh mm -hmm. alcoholic beverage Mm -hmm. And I probably pretty much dismissed it back in those days as something uh, not, not, not worth my consideration. But I am absolutely uh, gobsmacked, the, the flavor, the complexity and, and how pleasant it is. So uh, the only solution I can have is you should try. <laughs> so you, you'd be surprised how, how, how pleasant it is to enjoy a chilled glass of uh, Gützler Riesling. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Peter, for joining me today on this podcast. It was a real pleasure.